The difference between a meat substitute, sometimes called a meat analog, and fake meat is one of both intention and outcome. A meat substitute is generally some type of culinary creation intended to replace meat in a dish that would typically contain meat, or a protein of some sort which sates that particular component of a person's hunger and checks that box on their health-related scorecard. In other words, a meat substitute is swapped in for meat and generally replicates or approximates some aspects of meat's character, whether that means its flavor, texture, appearance, or just its vitamin and mineral profile. But such foods can also be fairly far afield from seeming at all like meat and still fall into this category. Falafel, for instance, is a bean fritter and probably wouldn't appear to be meat to anyone who's eating it. You know that you are eating falafel when you are eating falafel, but it often fills the role that meat would otherwise fill in a variety of Middle Eastern dishes. Fake meat, on the other hand, is a term generally reserved for a meat substitute that is going far out of its way to seem like meat, to perhaps even successfully stand in for meat without the consumer of the dish knowing that a swap has been made. Plant-based hamburger patties, meat mints, chicken tenders, these would all fall into this category, as would vegan sausages or hot dogs, made of some combination of soy protein, tofu, seitan, nuts, lentils, vegetables, or other non-animal proteins, all wrapped together in the same form factor as an animal-based version of the same, and in some cases tasting quite similar as well. I did an episode of this show last year about soybeans, in which I touched on a big story that had just emerged at the time regarding milk and meat and how non-animal-based analogs of these substances were being challenged in court by their animal-based brethren, who were, perhaps rightfully, feeling threatened by these newly popular alternatives. And as a consequence, we're trying to make it illegal to call non-animal-based milk, milk, and non-animal-based meat, meat. The fairness or unfairness of this position, not to mention the legal validity of it, is still up in the air throughout most of the U.S. and in other countries that have seen such legal challenges emerge thus far. Whatever we call them, though, it's indisputable that the market for non-animal-based alternatives to many popular food products, from meat to milk, from eggs to honey, is growing quickly. And that growth is being noticed by entities with money to invest and the desire to inflate their bank accounts while also potentially amplifying the efforts of companies that they believe in. And these investments, in turn, are leading to more interest in these spaces and more self-consciousness by traditional players with their old-school milks and meats, which are anything but unpopular, but who still see this newcomer growth market as a potential near-term threat to their health and maybe even existence. What I'd like to talk about today is a recent IPO by a fake meat manufacturer some of the new ideas and technologies behind modern meat substitutes, and why now might finally be the moment that these products become more than just the relatively tiny niche market they've been for most of modern history. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled Beyond Meat's Share Price More Than Doubles in Vegan Burger Makers IPO. An IPO is an initial public offering, basically when a private company decides to sell shares of itself on the stock market, not just to private investors. This is generally a move that is made when a company wants to scale up and to generate revenue so that it has cash on hand when it needs that cash, and the ability to generate more cash in the future by selling more shares of itself whenever it likes, rather than being limited to investment rounds from wealthy investors. So the IPO helps them sell tons of shares initially, and they have more shares in reserve that they can sell later, and the market determines how much each of those shares are worth based on all kinds of variables. The folks behind Beyond Meat seem to have thought that they were in a good position to sell shares of the company in this way at a good price and to make a lot of money doing it. There's always the chance that a company will have an IPO, sell tons of shares, but sell them way lower than planned, which would mean giving away portions of ownership of the company for less than desired and lowering the perceived value of the company. So making this choice to raise more money in this way was intended to put them in a more monetarily favorable spot compared to their competition, which, and I will get more into this in a moment, there is a lot of at this particular moment in this particular facet of the food industry. When we say that the share price of this company's stocks more than doubled on opening day, then, that is a very good sign for the company. It doesn't mean that the stock price will stay high. But it does mean that the market, which includes a lot of people who have done a lot of research, both into the product and into the business model behind the product, it broadly indicates that a lot of such people have a lot of confidence that this company will do well. And in this case, the stock, at least, did very, very well. It actually rose more than 160%, starting from an IPO price of $25, a price the company and the folks who help such companies prime for IPO time decided would be a reasonable choice. It climbed from that $25 to $46 as soon as the market opened, and trades were so intense that the market had to halt trades for a bit due to the volatility. There was so much activity around this stock that they had to pause to get things sorted out so they could determine which purchases and sales happened in what order. By the end of the day, the stock price had peaked at $72, and it closed at $65.75, again after starting with an initial price of $25. Not bad for first-day activity, and very not bad for a company that warned potential stockholders ahead of time that it may never make a profit. This IPO left Beyond Meat with a market capitalization of $3.8 billion, which refers to how much money the company is worth based on the number of stock shares on the market multiplied by the price of those stock shares. So it's not how much money they have in the bank, it is a commonly used metric for figuring out how big a company is overall. This isn't a fly-by-night startup with an overnight success story. They didn't materialize out of nowhere and achieve that kind of market cap without trying. Beyond Meat has been around since 2009, and they relatively quickly, after starting up back then, received venture funding, the type that comes in large chunks from wealthy people and organizations, most frequently, from entities like Bill Gates, Biz Stone, the Humane Society, the actor Leonardo DiCaprio, and Obvious Corporation, which was at one point the holding company for Twitter, among other tech products. 
Beyond Meat seems to have, from the beginning, attempted to differentiate itself from the variety of mostly small, mostly unknown alternative to meat producers by taking some tried-and-true methods for producing viable meat alternatives and refining them with new ideas about how to make the products more palatable to a larger audience, and how to market those products to folks who are not already vegans or vegetarians. That former point seems to contribute to the latter, actually. These products are often found in meat aisles by design as part of their marketing strategy, and they can get away with that because the products actually look a whole lot like what they're purporting to replace, like beef and chicken. And they've only gotten more confident with this in-store placement as their product has become more and more celebrated by the non-meat-eating and meat-eating culinary worlds alike. Part of the story of Beyond Meat and their IPO, though, is the story of this corner of the food world in general. Because although this IPO was undoubtedly a success, and is almost certainly a good sign for folks who are keen to see more high-quality meat substitutes on the market, Beyond Meat is not the only behemoth stomping around in this space. And their approach, their type of meat substitute, and their specific set of technologies are not the only viable options that investors and consumers have to choose from today. And there are even more of all of these things just over the horizon. Impossible Foods, maker of the Impossible Burger, takes a very similar approach to meat substitution as Beyond Meat, and their product lineup and approach to the industry is also similar. Both have figured out a way to make their meat replacements look more like meat. Impossible uses a substance called heme that comes from plants that kind of makes it bleed or looks like it's bleeding when you are cooking that fake beef patty, while Beyond Meats uses pea protein mixed with beet juice to accomplish the same, to allow their non-animal-derived products to sort of bleed like animal-derived products. And although these effects in both cases, however it's achieved, is primarily just for aesthetic effect, it also does seem to help the patties cook up a bit more like their meat-based forebears. And this is actually a big PR point for both companies, and something that some chefs have gone absolutely gaga about when talking about these companies' burger patties. Both brands have also been partnering with well-known purveyors of meat products of late in an attempt to get their offerings out to more people and particularly more people throughout the Midwest of the United States, which seems to be the major demographic target for this type of company at the moment, at least in North America. That desire has led to wheeling and dealing at trade shows to get their respective products into grocery stores around the U.S., and more recently, they've resulted in deals with a slew of dining establishments as well. Beyond Meat is now, as of January 2019, selling its product at over 1,100 U.S. locations of Carl's Jr. and all 580 Del Taco locations around the United States. They've also had their entire array of products at Whole Foods and Kroger supermarkets for a while now, and they've got one-off deals with individual restaurants and smaller restaurant chains around the country. Impossible Foods, for their part, recently announced a big partnership with Burger King, which began a test run of Impossible Whoppers, a trademark Burger King burger with an Impossible Burger patty inside, instead of a meat patty, at 59 locations in the St. Louis, Missouri area in early 2019. That experimental partnership apparently served both entities well enough that Burger King is now expected to have the Impossible Whopper at most or all of their U.S. locations by the end of 2019. This, by itself, is already a pretty big deal. 
Veggie burgers of various sorts have been around for ages, and most restaurants have some kind of veggie-friendly option on their menu at this point. The last decade in particular has seen immense growth in on-menu food offerings, from vegetarian and vegan options to gluten-free and dairy-free options. But to have these massive chains upend their fundamentals in this way, engaging in these sorts of partnerships, is a different thing. That Burger King, a company that has burger right there in their name, decided that a meat patty substitute is good enough for them to partner with the company that makes it to tie their most famous brand name product, the Whopper, to that meat substitute, calling it the Impossible Whopper. That's huge. And if you look around this sector right now to see what else is stirring, you'll see a lot of players, including meat-focused companies like Tyson Foods, the number one producer of meat products in the United States. They're products on every shelf of every entity that sells food in the United States, more or less, getting revved up for this newly shiny sub-industry. Tyson actually owned a 6.5% stake in Beyond Meat, but sold off that stake before the IPO to avoid a conflict of interest because they decided to go whole hog and develop their own line of alternative protein products, of meat substitution products, to sell alongside all of their meat. All that said, it's important to note that none of this is truly new. There have been meat substitution options for as long as there have been dishes containing meat, and there have been cultures around the world since the beginning of humanity that have had plant-focused diets that either mostly or completely left meat off the menu. What's different about what's happening now is that we seem to be at an inflection point, a moment in which there is a confluence of diverse elements that are overlapping in ways that make this a favorable time for this type of food product, and on a scale that is potentially larger and more diverse than what has come before. Right now, in mid-2019, we are seeing the emergence and refinement of numerous trends, technologies, systems, and ethical standards that are making this industry not just a viable one, but a flourishing, burgeoning one. The aforementioned approach that both Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are taking to their burger patties, for instance, using a type of pea protein paired with beet juice in one case, and using a type of plant-based heme in the other, along with a combination of other nutritional and flavor-related materials, is new, and it's clever, and it distinguishes their offerings from other similar products that have come before. These burgers are becoming known for being delicious and burgery, not just to folks who cannot eat meat for health or ethical reasons, but also to those who can but choose not to when these alternatives are on offer at an affordable price. These two companies' shared approach to taking on meat options where they live in the meat aisle and at meat-focused restaurants and via fast food hubs isn't itself new either. There have been what would today probably be seen as old model veggie burger patties at these places for years, but the standard preservative-laden Boca Burger-style soy protein patty, or the undifferentiated white-label black bean patties that have been the only option in most large-scale food distribution systems up until now, stand in stark contrast to these new, sexy, well-branded, brazenly confident, more complex options that are getting all this funding. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of new technology involved in the production of these new meat substitute options, but the time that has been required to refine them, to test the myriad possible protein, binding agent, preservative, vitamin and mineral, fiber, and other potential edible component combinations, that has apparently been a journey all unto itself. 
That's a lot of research and development dollars and human effort and time, years and years of time. And that's a big part of what's made these new options possible, even if they don't require fancy lasers or teleportation or something like that to produce. It's likely, though, that despite the high quality of both these companies' products, neither of them would be doing as well as they are if the world was not already shifting in the direction that it is shifting. And that's a statement that applies to many different aspects of life. Worldwide, we are becoming more accepting of different lifestyles. And although there is a backpedaling in this regard in some parts of the world right now, the story of the 20th and 21st centuries has largely been one of progress when it comes to letting people be who they are. And that includes their dietary preferences. These preferences, like vegetarianism and veganism, and even subtler variances like pescatarianism, are not new, but they are relatively newly popular and catered to in places like the US and Europe, where younger generations in particular are taking them up with, at times, near religious zeal. And older generations are also being nudged toward these types of choices, to greater and lesser degrees, for multiple health, economic, and ethical reasons. The health benefits of non-meat diets are highly dependent on the people involved and the specifics of the diets to which said people adhere. Oreos are vegan, but a diet consisting primarily of Oreos would not be ideal for many different reasons. So going meat-free isn't some kind of dietary panacea. It's possible to be a truly unhealthy vegan. And along those same lines, there is some concern from the world of traditional makers of animal-free burgers that these new offerings from Impossible and Beyond Meat are not all they purport to be. Yes, they dramatically reduce some of the downsides of your burger-centric meal, but they are also often high in preservatives like sodium and filled with highly processed substances, materials that wouldn't even typically be considered food if they weren't combined and prepared in the right way. Many of the non-mass-produced, non-shelf-stable big names in non-meat burgers until now have made their reputation on patties built out of real food, combined in such a way that they delight customers with their flavor and substance. These new big brand names produced by these now-massive, well-funded companies are not that. The ingredient list for both burger patties, published in a Quartz article in May of 2019, may be instructive here. The Impossible Burger is made up of water, textured wheat protein, coconut oil, potato protein, natural flavors, and 2% or less of heme protein, yeast extract, salt, soy protein isolate, konjac gum, xanthan gum, thiamine, zinc, niacin, vitamin B6, riboflavin, and vitamin B12. The Beyond Burgers ingredient list is even longer, consisting of pea protein isolate, expeller-pressed canola oil, refined coconut oil, water, yeast extract, maltodextrin, natural flavors, gum arabic, sunflower oil, salt, succinic acid, acetic acid, non-GMO modified food starch, cellulose from bamboo, methyl cellulose, potato starch, beet juice extract, ascorbic acid, annatto extract, citrus fruit extract, and vegetable glycerin. This is not necessarily a bad thing. All food is made up of other chemicals and proteins and other fundamental stuff. That's how living things work, and that's how food works. It's debatable as to whether putting those things together in a lab or assembly line is fundamentally different from putting them together in a kitchen or in another living organism, other than in terms of tradition. That said, there are a lot of people who know a whole lot about food and health that preach the gospel 
of simple food being generally more ideal, whatever type of diet you happen to be consuming. And if that's what you're aiming for, these new burgers are probably not the optimal choice, at least most of the time. The economic argument for these sorts of meat substitutes is that, well, meat is often expensive. And when it's not, it's generally because that particular portion of the meat industry is being subsidized by the government, by tax dollars that you probably pay. The reason this is the case, that meat is expensive, whether that's reflected in the price you pay for it at the market or not, is that it takes a long while and a whole lot of resources relative to other types of food to make meat. And that's because you really don't make meat. You make animals, and those animals grow meat on their bodies. They are made up of meat, and you harvest that meat from their bodies once you have raised them to be sufficiently meat-laden and then kill them. That specific process is varied, but often non-ideal for many reasons, both in terms of health and in terms of the morality of how the animals are treated along the way. But if we're looking at pure economics here, this is arguably an incredibly inefficient system for making protein of this kind for us to consume. And if we really, really think it's important to eat muscle cells of this type, arranged in this way, it may be that lab-grown meat, which doesn't require growing and killing an animal to harvest, it's just the muscle tissue grown separately, that will almost certainly be cheaper than the current meat-growing process once it has achieved sufficient scale and once you get rid of the meat subsidies that exist in many countries today for various reasons. I'm not focusing on that type of product in this episode, because it's arguably not fake meat. It's actual meat produced in a different way. But that's a space I am watching with great interest. The technology is not as advanced as the fake meat technologies we're talking about here, but it's a potentially huge step for a lot of reasons but also one that wigs people out for a lot of interesting and potentially legitimate reasons as well. But for now, back to fake meat. The ethical issues inherent in this space broadly fall into two main categories, those related to the environment and those related to the suffering of animals. Environmentally, the production of meat uses a huge amount of resources, and recent cradle-to-distribution life cycle assessment studies have shown that a quarter pound of meat substitute, compared to a traditional quarter pound of beef, uses 99% less water, creates 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, requires 46% less energy, and has 93% less impact on land use. Now, some of these studies have been commissioned by the fake meat companies in question, which doesn't mean their data are worthless, especially since similar studies they didn't commission have resulted in similar numbers. But it's worth being aware that in nascent spaces like this, where there's this kind of money on the line, it's not unusual to find studies that are self-serving in some way, and not as unbiased as we might want. So it's good practice to not take these sorts of things at face value without first questioning the source. But whether these numbers are entirely accurate or just partially accurate, that's still pretty good news for folks who like burgers, but who don't want to contribute more than they already are to the numerous ecological issues that we are facing as a species today. In terms of animal suffering, there's pretty much no comparison here. It is possible to make the argument that certain types of ranching, of chicken raising, of feeding cows are more ethical than others, and that's almost certainly the case. But if you want to avoid treating other animals as food sources, real meat is not really an option at all to begin with. 
So these sorts of products become one more option in an also growing sea of vegetarian and vegan food products, many of which don't even pretend to be meat replacements. But crossover foods like these fake meat burgers may make such dietary restrictions seem a little more doable to skeptics. And they could give folks who agree with the ethics of non-meat diets, but who don't have the willpower to stray from their meat-heavy upbringings, the nudge that they need to adopt another way of eating, at least part of the time. And that's an important part of this story, I think. What this IPO and the overall growth of the meat substitution industry represents is a shift from more niche lifestyle, veganism, and vegetarianism into something that's more accessible and practical seeming to a larger group of possible consumers. If you're already vegan, the success these companies are having may be nice. It may provide you with more options or give you another talking point at dinner with your non-vegan family, a way to help them accept your perspective on things because it's not a crazy-seeming ultra-niche dietary choice anymore. But it probably won't fundamentally change your life in any real way. You are already happily munching on plant-based foods anyway. These burgers are to the meat replacement world in my mind at least, sort of like casual gaming has been to the video gaming world. A new technology and collection of systems and lifestyle orientations emerged about a decade ago, very much including the smartphone and the concept of selling apps for smartphones, and that led to a surge in popularity in gaming amongst people who had never gamed before. The games that did really well within this new paradigm, though, were not the typical video game fare. They were casual games like Angry Birds and Food Ninja, and other titles you could play while on the subway, while waiting for your kids to get out of school, while in the waiting room at the doctor's office. These were still video games, but they weren't taken particularly seriously by existing gamers. In some cases, they were even scoffed at by people who had their own video game consoles who wanted high-end graphics and epic storylines and titles that required hundreds of hours of experience to master, rather than these quirky little tap-tap-tap games that you could pick up and put down whenever, without the same sense of growth and destination that these hardcore gamers were accustomed to. Those casual games, though, dramatically increased the scale of the gaming ecosystem, pulling in more demographics, more age groups, more backgrounds and economic levels. It made the video game industry bigger than almost any other media industry, depending on how you measure these things. And it happened not because the world of serious gamers suddenly expanded in a big way, and not because they were able to make their model, their type of gaming, their preference, accessible to more people. It expanded because casual gaming exploded, and more people felt served by that type of media than ever before. Casual gaming, then, was a very serious thing for the industry, but also for the culture of gaming. It changed that culture. It changed those who were a part of it. It changed the level of influence that video games had on broader pop culture. It changed everything. Traditional plant-based diets, I think, may experience the same as those hardcore gamers did in the near future. We will see more casual plant-based meal consumers who are vegan or vegetarian much of the time, perhaps even most of the time, and that will swell the ranks of folks who eat such foods and the bank accounts of the companies who make such foods. And that, in turn, will also adjust the culture surrounding these diets, which at times can be quite dogmatic, bordering on religious, but which might open up more when it seems friendlier, easier to access, and more receptive to outsiders and their wants and needs 
wants and needs that may not fit squarely into the trends and into the culture that currently exists within these dietary subcultures. This IPO and this moment in this industry could represent an inflection point in this space then, but perhaps not in the way that folks in the plant-based diet world always envisioned. It may not be that we all come to the plant-based table for the same reasons. Some may crave meat and happily eat it when they get the chance, but may not be able to justify the cost, as real meat prices shoot up due to the loss of subsidies and some of their economies of scale. Meat substitutes may make up more of that market and compete with the low prices that they can achieve due to their far lower footprint and far more rapid production timeline. It may be that health concerns nudge others over the line, and still others arrive because, although they enjoy a good lamb chop, they're also worried about climate change, and are trying to adjust their habits toward lower-impact behaviors wherever possible. And meat turns out to be a truly simple option for many people in that regard, in terms of reducing one's pollution and resource consumption footprint. And it may be that other people make the shift because of the taste, because they like the meals being offered by vegan and vegetarian chefs. Maybe they'll adhere to those dietary standards part of the week, or just one day a week. Maybe they'll be less strict and do it just on a meal-by-meal -meal basis. Terrible vegetarians, perhaps, but wildly less polluting and perhaps even healthier omnivores, by some standards at least. The future in this space, in other words, may not be shaped by one of the existing sides of the meat or no meat debate. It may be shaped by a confluence of new groups, new individuals, adopting the pieces that make sense to them, that are marketed to them, made accessible to them, and making those pieces their own. And there's a chance that this new future could achieve many of the goals that many people have been trying to achieve for a very long time when it comes to meat consumption or non-consumption. But it may arrive in a package that looks a whole lot like what came before. The website that I'd like to recommend today is one that I stumbled across just the other day and I found it to be incredibly useful in that how did I not know about this before sort of way. You can find this website at ethical.net. E-T-H-I-C-A-L dot net. And at this website, you will find a resource list that is essentially a collection of different products and services that are ethical according to different standards, and primarily standards related to privacy, related to favoring the consumer over the product. So rather than soaking up all of your data and using it however they like, they tend to favor the customer, you. Ethical in terms of sustainability and eco-friendliness, particularly when it comes to things like clothing, where they have a list of resources that you can use to find eco-friendly clothing brands, and ethical according to other standards like the way that you eat. There's actually some vegan and vegetarian-focused options on here, which is relevant to this episode. Chances are there is something on this list that would serve as a viable alternative to something that you are currently using, and even if you do not decide to switch over because the ethics are not yours or it would be too much of a pain, it is nice to know that these things exist. So if you're keen to find out what those resources might be, keen to take a look around and see what other options are available, pop on over to ethical.net and go to their resource page. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. 
You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com, and you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.